So she thought as she got up to the desk and the suitcase goes away and it goes past the sniffer dog and it seems to be okay. And the next minute she gets this hand clamped on her shoulder. I can only imagine her stomach must have fallen to her toes. I'm Nicola Talent, and you're listening to Crime World, a podcast about criminals, drugs and the sins of the underworld in Ireland and across the globe. She was the teenage drug mule who became a household name. And when she was jailed in Peru for attempting to smuggle 11 kilos of cocaine to Ibiza, her fame was cemented. But since then, the story of Michaela McCollum and her sidekick, Melissa Reed has seen many ups and downs. And while Reed has faded into oblivion, Instagram sensation McCollum continues to court celebrity. Cancelled by Piers Morgan, criticised by the media, and now laid bare in a BBC series centred on the story of the Peru 2, Michaela McCollum has never tried to hide from her past. But who is she and what price is her fame? This week... I'm joined by journalist Lynn Kelleher, who has written extensively on the Peru 2 and who has managed to get a sneak preview of the new BBC series set to be released tonight, which McCollum has participated in for free. Lynn tells me about the hedonistic cartel plot to smuggle cocaine, about the cockroach-infested cells, about her rise to popularity among some of the most dangerous prisoners in the world and of the endearing qualities of the real Michaela McCollum. This is Crime World, a podcast from sundayworld.com. Like Michaela McCollum and Melissa Reed, like we would know who they they were obviously the names would be very familiar to us because we were working as journalists at the time and maybe our age but there's lots of people out there who don't remember them because it was 2013 when this happened so it's coming up to 10 years ago so just remind us who they are and why they hit the world headlines in such a way so they're two 20 year old girls and the first time we saw them the international cameras would have seen them as at Lima airport in Peru with a suitcase full of porridge packets that contained cocaine, 11 kilos of cocaine, looking very dumbstruck and, you know, like rabbits in the headlights, basically. Um, and and their, their suitcases, initially when they were caught, the customs officers were even laughing at them because there was these, it was a whole suitcase full of porridge packets. And next minute they're tested and, and the swab goes in and it goes blues, blue and all hell breaks loose. They go coca, coca, coca. And, you know, they're just swarmed. So that was when the international cameras had got them. But if you rewind back maybe a week or two, Michaela McCollum, who's from Northern Ireland, um, a little town outside Dungannon, she had taken off to Ibiza and she used to check in with her mother every morning and every evening. And she'd gone missing AWOL for two or three weeks. Now she went there on, she went there to work or she went on a holiday or what? She basically kind of got out of Dodge in Belfast. She had got herself into a bit of hassle and she went, she told the family she was going for a week. She'd never been on a holiday before. She'd never been out of Northern Ireland. And she landed there, got jobs as hostesses in in bars. She had some kind of a fire dancing thing at some stage. So she was kind of this very impulsive 
19 year old at that stage. She didn't know how long she was going to stay there. She was just escaping Northern Ireland. A few things had happened to her, uh, which we'll find out about later beforehand. But she was just on the run and she was out for a good time and she was out for a party. And she was initially gone for a week and then it went into five or six weeks and then she went missing. And they all thought, you know, all the usual scenarios that go through a family's head. There was GoFundMe pages, there was appeals, it was all over Twitter, they were looking for her. And the next minute she pops up in Lima Airport with this huge updo on her head, looking ludicrous with, you know, this suitcase full of cocaine. So that was, that was where we first came they across her. Like- they looked in those pictures like two children that had been caught literally with their hands in the cookie jar, didn't they? I mean, these giant suitcases in front of them and they just looked like, whoops. Uh, so, listen, it was a sensational story from the beginning. You know, the age of them, the, the photographs and the idea that here they were trafficking cocaine. They weren't really, I suppose, the usual cocaine traffickers from Peru because Peru is a country that is very poor and there's lots of people there who will take a few hundred quid to operate as a human trafficker. Now, a lot of them will take the cocaine, they'll carry it inside their their bodies. Um, Some of them will carry it in a suitcase. But these two just seem to be affluent Westerners. And that's maybe what made them look all the more unusual. Yes. And it kind of, the the whole thing came out of the blue. Bekele was on this party cycle in Ibiza, this total hedonistic island, everyone's partying constantly. She landed in Ibiza. She didn't even unpack. She went straight out to party. She didn't know anyone. She met someone on the plane and just kept going and then got these jobs. Was taking drugs. She was taking ketamine. She was taking cocaine. And after a few weeks, she befriended this fella called Davy, who was a drug dealer. And... She was warned about him, but he was he was a bit more clean cut than the rest of them. The rest of them were the people that she was mixing it were taking drugs, whereas he seemed to refrain from taking the drugs a bit. And she liked him and she ended up in this villa one night with him and she took acid. And she was well used to taking ketamine and cocaine and weed and all sorts ever since she was 16 in Northern Ireland. And she'd hit the party circuit then. She hadn't taken acid before, but she seemed to be someone who didn't seem to have much of a downside to drugs. She seemed to be able to, you know, she was talking about the high, she was talking about the high from ketamine that seems to make you feel very loopy and you lose feelings in your arms and all that kind of stuff. And the cocaine, she'd get a high from it. She seemed to enjoy this acid trip. And in the middle of the acid trip, he asked her to go to Barcelona to pick up a packet. And she kind of questioned him a bit, as much as you question someone when you're on acid, and seemed to agree and then it was the come down of all come downs because next minute she's in her apartment packing a suitcase and kind of half wondering where she's going or what she's doing. And then she's handed over to another guy who brings her to his apartment. And then she's passed on to another guy called Matteo. Who's, and he's booking flights for her. And she said, oh, I thought I was going to Barcelona. And he said, no, you're going to Peru. And she claims, because it seems ludicrous, that she doesn't know where Peru is. She thought Peru was in Spain. You know, she thought it was just another town like Barcelona. So she 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 kind of readily agreed to this. So she arrives in Parma then, in Mallorca. And this is where she meets up with Melissa Reed. He says he's going to, it's going to be very simple. Uh, they know everybody. There'll be plenty of eyes on her. Even when she goes through 
the airport, if if anyone looks at the suitcase, you know, it'll be people that are working for him, which maybe it's why they're quite calm in the airport when you see them, you know, and they're scratching their noses and stuff. They're still wondering if that person is working for their pals or their, the people that they're in, in truck with. Can I ask you there, firstly, Michaela McCullum has, to, has told her story a number of different ways over the years, but we'll come back to that. And there was reasons why she says she told it one way when she was facing the rigours of the law in Peru. Now, totally understandable. I think you'd tell them anything in order to get out of those prisons. But um, just to to bring you back to that point in time when she makes this agreement and uh, she says she's initially done it on asset and later she kind of doesn't really know what she's doing. Um, She doesn't know where Peru is. That's, you know, I suppose if you're 19 and you haven't listened to geography class, it's perfectly plausible, really. But did she know Melissa Reed before this or was that the first time they'd met when they were literally the two of them about to board a plane? We can sort of elicit from this that Melissa Reed was having a similar experience with a man somewhere else and that she was also being convinced to do this. She's a girl from Scotland, the same age-ish and also out there working. Like, did they know one another? No, that they say they didn't, had never met each other before. So she gets from Ibiza to, to Mallorca and she's in Pama and she's met off the plane by Melissa Reed, who initially she doesn't really like. She thinks she's a bit bossy and she's in a house with her then and this Matthew and the phones have been taken from them. So she had to, I mean, a, tw- a 19 year old girl handing over her phone. It was, she was very reluctant to do it. But he gave her a burner phone and said that it was a Blackberry and that the messages from Blackberries couldn't be couldn't be scanned by the police. And at that stage, she says something a bit intelligent because she says, oh, well, you know, you said it's all going to be so easy. And why would the police be trying to scan me in the first place? And he kind of brushes her off. So she meets Melissa and they're there in this um, village in Mallorca for a few days and then they go separately. So Melissa goes first and then um, Michaela gets on the plane and she claims the first time she knew that she was going to South America is when she looked at the screen that you have in front of you on the plane and there was an arrow pointing downwards. Because earlier on, (laughs) she had spoken to a guy who was from Colombia and she said she was thinking in her head, oh no, no, you know, I, I wouldn't want to go anywhere like that. You know, she'd heard of Colombia but she hadn't heard it. She hadn't uh, stitched in that Peru was, was in South America. So when the arrow pointed, she twigged that it was in South America. She immediately thought of jungles and she panicked a bit. But she got off the plane then and she, she met Melissa and they started their journey to getting these in drugs. Peru. Yes. I mean, I suppose to, to we have to try and bring ourselves back to our 19-year-old selves when we think of this and 18-year-olds. And I don't think you or I would have been that sensible either. Uh, I remember some tangles we got into over the years. So I think I may have known where Peru was and I'm not sure I would have agreed to carry drugs back. But nonetheless, we'll give her her young age, I suppose, her lack of experience out there in the world and the fact that she is a drug user. So, you know, she's obviously, as you said, impulsive and she's made some crazy decisions already before she even does this. So we'll certainly give her that and move on with her story. So what happens them in Peru? So they land in Peru. They're in touch with this guy called Matthew. So Matthew, and it's all through text constantly. And so they, the plan is that they have to look like tourists. 
that they have to look like they're doing the, the backpacker tourist trip and they're going to be there for two weeks. So it'll make it look less suspicious when they come back, you know, after two weeks. So they're booked on this seven day um, backpacking trip that the backpackers do, which she's less than thrilled about. She even, you know, recently when she's speaking about it, she calls it ridiculous. <laughs> you know, they're going up these side mountain roads and doing the Machu Picchu Trail. And she's obviously not, you know, enamoured with nature and that kind of thing. And, and she's definitely not the backpacker type from the from the sounds of things because she, she finds all this uh, slumming it on buses very tiresome. Um, and as she was going around then, I think, you know, she was she, she was having doubts. She was coming down at that stage and she was on the bus and she was getting annoyed at being on the bus. And they kept having, they were told to take pictures at all the touristy bits. And she's thinking about it more and more. And But every time she seems to bring it up with this guy, he reassures her. And you, she's told as well that there's eyes watching her. And, you know, and as, as it comes nearer and nearer to the time she's picking up the cocaine, she feels kind of threatened. She feels like there's eyes watching her. She doesn't know where they are. He says they're friendly eyes. And then, you know... She, she, she seems to definitely feel threatened at the end, but doesn't seem to know how to get out of it. And were they staying in a backpacker's hostel or were they staying in a hotel? And like, did these guys bring them out at night or were they, were they did they have a bit of crack as well as being on the dusty old buses going up a part of the world that lots of people would just kill to see? No, no. So they're doing the backpacking trail. So they're going from place to place to place. And then they get back into uh, Lima. And there's a peculiar thing where she says that she's in, in Lima and there is a famous square and these police walk up towards her and she's completely alarmed and she thinks the, the jig is up and they know something. And even though they haven't met anyone yet or picked up the cocaine. And then she says the police asked to take a picture of them with her. Um, now, there is, these pictures exist. So whether she, they asked her or I think the prosecutors thought that she might have asked the police to do a touristy thing to be shown to, again, you know, it's all part of the ruse to do this touristy thing. Um, so that that was that was part of it. And then literally, you know, a few hours before they go, they this person arrives and, and with these packets of porridge and he's kind of given her instructions about where to put it. But there's so much of it and she can barely lift the suitcase. It's so heavy. It was just this huge, she really had no idea, I think, the, of the scale of it. So they, they, they weren't going to tell her before. And I think she thought she was going to have a small package. And, and then, you know, it was literally an entire suitcase full of, of these, the, these porridge packets. And then they, they go to the airport. And at that stage, I think she's kind of um, in for a penny and for a pound. She's kind of just wants to get home. She just wants to get away from this. She knows she hasn't been in contact with her family and I don't think it's, she's turned 20 at that stage, but I don't think she's figured out how to back out of it. Well, there probably isn't any easy way of backing out of it, you know, whether or not we, we completely believe her series of events or not. There is, I think, there is no backing out of any of these sort of arrangements with drug gangs, particularly in South or Central America. You're, you're pretty much, uh, you know, there's no way out of it because you, you've seen them, you know, too much. And I mean, it all sounds very movie-like, doesn't it, in a way? But, um, you know, these these things do happen. So 
it's at this point they're pulled aside from the queue. Their bags are searched and it's discovered that they have something like $1.8 million worth of cocaine in the suitcases, um, which is, you know, you're goosed no matter what country you're in with that. Um, so the story breaks internationally. It's obviously a massive story. They're called the Peru 2. And um, journalists start delving into their backgrounds and their life on Ibiza before they went out. And I never really ever saw any particular proper investigative journalism into the kind of drug gangs that existed there in the Balearic Islands or the kind of um, things that do, uh, you know, how, how the drugs are brought in and by who. There was never really anybody named and shamed in the background. It was just all focus was on these two girls and their story. Understandable in one way, but um, they, from memory, there was a lot of calls for the British consulate to give them help. There was a lot of calls by their families for support for them. A lot of talk that they were just innocents caught up in this. And uh, I think everybody was a bit terrified that they were going to land in jail because uh, it's it's no holiday camp in Peru, is it? No. And interestingly, just to go back to where they're caught, the prosecutor says that the undercover police, and there's so many of them, she talks about she was stunned when she went into the airport. There seemed to be police everywhere. I suppose there probably would look like there was if you're have a big suitcase full of cocaine. But she said, the, the, the prosecutor in Peru said they're trained to find these people. So they, they, they look nervous, obviously, and their eyes are trained on their suitcases, apparently. They're glued to the stash at all times. So she thought as she got up to the desk and the suitcase goes away, as we would see, you know, they, they just trolley her suitcase away and it goes past the sniffer dog and it seems to be okay. And the next minute she gets this hand clamped on her shoulder and I can only imagine her stomach must have fallen to her toes. But still, the other side of it is, and it's probably the reason why they're scared and the reason why they were kind of calm at the same time is these men are telling them that they've police working for them, that they've people in the airport working for them. So at this stage, she's she's paranoid. She has been on truckloads of ketamine and cocaine and all sorts in Ibiza for for five or six weeks. She was on an acid trip before she took the plane to Peru. And then she spent, you know, a week or two going around this mountaintops and she's obviously on a come down. So I'm sure she was paranoid as well, you know, with with the situation. So yeah, so then then that's when they're brought in and and you can hear, when you see the footage of it, you can see the the, the police laughing because it was ludicrous that these people would be bringing back so many packets of porridge. You know, it just didn't make any sense. But the other thing which was interesting is a few of the experts have said that they think that they may have been set up by the gangs to as a ruse. So they 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 ring and dob them into the police and then another three or four go on the same plane with much more campaign, cocaine and they've given the police one stash and, and a high profile catch as such. And high profile it was because, you know, yeah, I mean, look, that is an ongoing scenario that does happen. They will, they will, you know, give up a certain amount of their product, 
drug gangs, all drug gangs will give up a certain amount of their product because they want to hide more. It's kind of like a, pro- a normal business plan. It's like if you owned a shop, you can expect a certain percentage of your stock is going to be damaged or be stolen. So if you accept that, you probably run a better drug business that you don't expect to get every single bit through and whatever. And sometimes you hand a bit up and it takes the eyes off you for for other things you're doing. So that's definitely um, a, a believable scenario. Now, all of this story has been played out on a BBC documentary, a five part series, which you've, you've watched. And um, firstly, how does she come across? You obviously have a little bit of a fondness for her having watched it. Yes, and then I read her book as well. Uh, so so the, the, there's, there's kind of a background to it. She's just to give you a quick background to her. She she, mm. she was she was lived out in a small village. So she's your typical girl from a small village looking for your the bright lights. The father was a um, from the, the south, and the mother was from the north, and they split up. She's the youngest of ten, and then at that stage they went back across the north to a small little village outside Dungannon and they were the, in the minority of Catholic family. So she talks about in the book just, uh, you know, about sectarian um, abuse levelled at them. And, you know, with the parade, sometimes they might get, they were told that the police at one stage told them to put something in their letterbox so that the grenades or whatever they could, wouldn't, wouldn't come true. So there was a lot of that. And then she got involved in um a, a relationship when she was 16 she moved in with a guy it went very badly he beat her up she got bruised ribs ended up in hospital and at that stage she had started taking drugs and then she went to to Belfast and and got herself jobs as a hostess and various things and then she seemed to get into another bit of bother with a friend who was a Protestant friend again and she liked some story on Facebook um, and the, the family had decided that she was Republican and and they had were hammering down the door of this friend's apartment who she shared the apartment with. So that happened a few days before she left for Ibiza. So she was kind of fleeing, fleeing, fleeing all the time. Um, and then they got, when they were caught in, in Lima, the two of them looked at each other and they very quickly decided to make up a story that they were forced into this. Right. So she probably was as well used to, difficult situations she was so she was someone who'd grown up with you know sectarian violence she was used to a level of dealing with situations maybe that another 19 year old wouldn't have had to deal with I mean the the situation with the boyfriend seemed to be very traumatic and she had she had got out of that so she seemed to be kind of on the run um you know and, and having her wits about it but they lied initially about being forced by the gang to to take the drugs and the prosecutors say they know that doesn't happen it's promises it's all carrot there's, there's no stick there because it wouldn't work they had said i think that they were kidnapped or something and they were held against their will and that they were going to be forced to bring back these drugs exactly that wouldn't happen it would be ludicrous to think a drug gang would transport their product like that but yeah so you're saying she was a kind of a survivor type maybe and we we know very little of Melissa Reed because she has been very private of course since all this happened but Michaela has you know been interviewed at length for this BBC documentary so you're getting a lot of kind of insight into her but you mean that she was a kind of a survivor that situations put came came at her and she was kind of used to dealing with them whatever way she she could whether that be make up a story or move country or you know start afresh so she probably had those coping skills others wouldn't 
And uh, yes, and she, but the, the issue with Michaela was she lied and she lied repeatedly. So she lied to the police. She lied and there was a few press interviews beforehand saying that they were forced into this and there was GoFundMe pages set, set up and people were very sympathetic at that stage. But as it was going on and she was in this horrendous prison at this stage, uh, a holding prison for, for a lot of drug people, um, you know, there was cockroach filled cells. I mean, she talks about going down the first night handcuffed by her hands and her feet. And it sounds very, very medieval and in her bare feet and no mattresses. And she said she could barely see the walls. It sounds extremely frightening. So they're there and they're claiming they know nothing. They know nothing about the gangs. They were forced into it and the prosecutors are losing patience with them. And they know that that's not true. So the maximum sentence is 15 years. And they're, they've, they've charged them at this stage. So, and then they've hired, her family have hired a defence lawyer who is seemingly letting them go on with this story, uh, but who seems to have intervened as their, their translator, who they became very close to. Uh, she was obviously, a, she seems to be American or English or who's living in Peru. And she encouraged them to tell the truth. So just before... They, they go to, you know, at the very 11th hour. And what was pulling them back was Michaela had told her mother and she had promised her mother that, you know, she was forced into this. And she just, the one time she gets very, very emotional in the documentary is when she describes being in this jail, the first jail that she was in, and asking the guard, could he make a phone call? She said he was quite sympathetic. And at this stage, her mother is frantic because she has believed she was missing. She didn't know where she was or what she was doing. Then she sees her on the television with the cocaine and she's on the phone and she's kind of explaining to her mother that she's in jail. And before she can say much more, the phone goes dead. And she later hears that the mother collapsed after that. And they didn't know if she'd, uh, you know, they initially thought it was a heart attack or a stroke or something, but she had recovered from this. But she did not want to, of all people, tell her mother that she had lied because her mother had gone on television she'd gone on ITV's Lorraine show and she had insisted that she was backing her daughter so you know and when they eventually did come clean and say that they were paid to do it the tide of public opinion went very much against Michaela and Melissa I suppose but Michaela has been more in public afterwards yes so she is she has been had to deal with that what were they going to be paid by the way oh only five thousand pounds now, when she initially heard this, she thought that was a lot of money, but then she thought she was picking up a small packet. And the other thing is, they were all taking drugs on the island. She was in a bar where she said drugs were regularly passed out, as well as the drinks. She was in a, she was in a scenario where drugs were everywhere. So she wasn't, you know, drug dealers didn't probably seem as alien to her as they might to somebody who wasn't taking drugs. So she she certainly didn't ever imagine, I think, that she was going to take a whole suitcase full of, of cocaine back from Peru. But maybe she thought it was a small package. And what she wanted was she was, you know, you get minimum wage or below min, minimum wage working in these bars as hostesses. She was having the time of her life. She wanted to stay on in Ibiza. So this 5000 was just going to give her extra money to party. That was her logic. I think that's where most people can connect with that teenage person that, you know, from from those days when people went away for these summers that everyone wanted them to last forever. 
Um, so she got, or they both got more than six years, which like is a lengthy sentence. I know they didn't get the 15 they could have, but six years living in those circumstances. Was the prison that they stayed in, that prison with the cockroaches on the floor and all the drug mules? So they're moved from that and then they go to this place called Ancon 2, which is out in the desert outside Lima. Notorious prison. And there's females and males. They're not mixed, but there's females and males. And when she goes into this place after being sentenced to uh, eight years and six months, she says the noise just hits her and it's like a zoo and it's completely chaotic. And then you have to remember they didn't know the language. They, you know, they, they were clueless as to what people were saying to them. The other thing was there was really, which struck her, probably worried her, was the overt sexuality. She said she'd never seen people behave like that in front of her. She didn't go into what she was seeing, but she said very much overt sexuality. So those first six months were terrifying. And she describes, you know, she was, they used to have to work in workshops every day. So the, the, there was 30 people to a cell, one bathroom, um, and then they would have to go into these workshops where they make bags and different things. And she describes this woman coming over to her one day and whispering something in Spanish. And next minute she leaps across the table with a huge needle and starts attacking this other girl. And there's blood and hair everywhere. And it's just, it was over a drug issue. Um, and then there as well, there was, there was she, she remembers in particular, there was one lady called Dusa. De la Mer, goddess of love, who found her husband, yeah, uh, found her husband was cheating on her. So she killed their son and, and fed him to the husband in a stew. I've never heard of a criminal like that. Why was she um, called the goddess of love? Maybe it was their sense of humour. Dusa de la Mer, goddess of love. Well, maybe she cooked him the stew, I'm not too sure. <laughs> There was another, one more situation like that where, where apparently they had to queue up to get to watch their films. And she had the Wolf of Wall Street in her hand and she'd skipped the queue in front of this small Brazilian lady. And this is a bit into it, so she's made friends at this stage, but another friend shouts, you know, watch out. And she looks behind her and there's a knife, you know, up to her head. And the other friend seems to rugby tackle the lady with the knife and there's a big kerfuffle and another lady comes in and takes the knife but says that they have to sort it out. And Michaela saying to her, well, I did nothing wrong. And the lady says, we've all done something wrong because we're in here. And she tells them to stay in the room until they sort it out. So she's 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 dealing with all of this um, and it it's very dark at that stage. And the translator, who seems to have really got a soft spot for them, is visiting them once or twice a week, giving them food and, and water because sanitation was terrible and the water was terrible. And she, she talks about seeing them very, very distressed at that stage. Um, and she can't imagine, you know, spending her whole 20s there. But then at about six months into it, she seems to just realise that, there, you know, everybody in there is in the same boat and she decides she's going to learn Spanish. And then another thing she's noticed is all the ladies seem to have, she's very into her appearance. And this is the reason for this ludicrous updo, I think, because it was the only way she could get the hair sorted in some fashion. So 
and she sees that they've nails done and things like this. And she, she eventually kind of finds out that there's this beauty parlour in the jail. And it's just a concrete floor and a few mirrors and things like that. So she goes into the beauty parlour and gets a job in the beauty parlour. And this is a really turning point for her to, for two reasons. Because, so she improves her Spanish by talking to these ladies. And then she becomes friends with them because it's a very intimate kind of situation, I suppose, being in a beauty parlour. And, and people confide their secrets in you and tell you things. And so she seems to have built up... Uh, a kind of very loyal clientele. She calls some clients and she kind of says she was winging it. And, you know, she was doing hair colouring and, and nails. I don't know where she was getting the supplies. But the translator says, it's not like an Irish prison or an English prison. You can run a business in a Peru prison and you can make money. And she was making money, which then led to her in that prison as well. They had a thing called a delegada which was the person in charge of your wing. So it was the delegate. It was the, the person who represented the prisoners. And the, the delegada that they had decided to step down. And there was an election. And she was up against a Mexican lady. But there was a lot of Mexicans. And she told Melissa that she was going to go for it. And Melissa thought she was mad. So, but she, she her, her crowd in her cell kind of backed her and they did a bit of canvassing and lo and behold, she becomes the delegata, the first English-speaking person ever to get that in the jail. So between uh, this, the earning the money from the beauty parlour and having these conversations and making friends and then becoming the delegate, so she's a bit of power and she's access to, to, to the prison authorities, this is how she starts to apply for her parole. So it's a very interesting journey. It, it reminded me, I think I was saying to you of the Bridget Jones movie of, of Bridget Jones sitting in the middle of all these women prisoners with bras on singing Madonna songs. Because she, she does talk about music a lot as well. And she talks about having this old radio in her cell and turning it on at night and listening to the music to get to go to sleep. And her cellmate is interviewed and she kind of fondly says that she went over and punched her one night because she, <laughs> she was so sick of this music blaring constantly. But she ended up being very, very close to this cellmate, Miguela, Miguelina, who was also a drugs mule and had got the full sentence, 11 years and, and, and a bit onto it and had left her children behind and she seemed to be in a violent relationship and needed to get out. But she said, you know, she would talk about finding her very funny and watching her dancing and, you know, she just smiles when she thinks of her. So she seems to have a very charismatic personality or a friendly personality, certainly. And she did win over the, the prison inmates, which I found very interesting. Most certainly, especially when she had to overcome the language before she did. Um, so she, I think she was ultimately released in, in March of 2015, but had to stay in Peru until February of 2016, at which point she returned home and became... Uh, sort of an Instagram type star. There was plenty of photographs being taken of her parading on beaches in her bikini. She starts to make a little bit of money probably from herself, um, which is a generational thing. And I think in a way we have to recognise that as well, that people of that generation, that age group, that is what they do. No matter what they're, you know, there's plenty of people I think who have been the stuff of 
the celebrity pages without actually having done or experienced anything like Michaela McCullum. But she did write a book about her her experiences and made money from it. I don't know how much money you make from a book like that, but perhaps she made she made a good bit. She was interviewed in 2019 by Piers Morgan. I think you watched that and he savaged her. Yes, he 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 did. He he didn't approve of her making any money off her story. She also made the mistake of saying to him that the media had been unfair to her, you know, and he he was demanding which part of the media was unfair to you. And I, I suppose in that situation, she had, she, there was no doubt about it, she was a drug mule. She had, you know, and there is huge damage done to people from that amount of cocaine. So she definitely is culpable that way. But I suppose what's interesting, what I, I find interesting about her telling her story is how she survived it. She has, you know, if you look at the flip side of that, which I was thinking about, if she had got through with her suitcase, and she had gone back to Ibiza, what would have happened to her? You know, she was on a really crazy spiral of ketamine and cocaine and, you know, all the rest of it. I mean, she, I have seen an interview of her saying that where she's almost pulled into jail. And I, I, don't, I don't know if that's true, but she definitely seems to come out of it as a better person. She's free of drugs. She survived, you know, what most people would find almost unsurvivable and seemed to thrive even in that situation. I think there's definitely something to learn. I mean, she is speaking out about how she was lured and maybe how easy it is for someone that age. I mean, you're very self-absorbed at 19. She's certainly very stupid. There's no question about that geographically and all sorts of ways. I mean, she wasn't, she definitely wasn't worldly wise and she wasn't thinking much ahead, but she makes the point that she thinks that you can make a mistake when you're young. And that you should be allowed to turn it around and you should be allowed. She said she's proud of what she's done since she made that mistake. I mean, she agrees that it was, you know, she uses language. I won't use here, but she agrees it was a massive mistake. But she has moved on with her life and she's doing a degree and she's she's had twins and she wants to be the best mother she can be. So I, I think Piers Morgan in that interview was very black and white about it. I think there's kind of a grey area with this. And I, I think certainly what what they did, even if they did only have less than three years in that prison, I think most people would find it very difficult to spend three years in those conditions, not knowing the language. And, and in fairness to Piers Morgan, he always defends the media. Like, you know, that's always where he gets into trouble when there are these celebrities who are, you know, criticising the way they were treated and yet they've courted celebrity. And he knows exactly how it works behind the scene. I mean, Michaela uh, McCollum when she came out of prison initially and as I said she was doing these sort of Instagram photographs and there was at some point she was doing some photographs on a beach and they were clearly set up and I mean working for the media you know that these people don't just show up on a beach looking absolutely perfect and getting their photographs taken. Most people who go to the beach go with their you know their towels stuffed into a little supermarket bag and uh you know they just they just don't look perfect the real world isn't perfect but she was obviously going along with that i've always felt about her that that is you know it's a way of making money for that generation for for putting your photograph and yourself out there and she still puts photographs of herself and her children up online and 
you know, she's a model as such. She has an agent. She um, takes work. But she's also done this BBC documentary and the BBC have been at pains to point out that she hasn't been paid for it, uh, which I think is interesting. I mean, is she somebody that loves celebrity enough that she had to get involved whether she got paid or not because she wanted to be on the television? Or does she feel that she needs a bit of control over her own story and that, you know, she doesn't need to get paid for for speaking about this? I mean, she certainly seems to have accepted her punishment. Yes, and I think there's another strand to it, I suppose, is which the tide of public opinion went very much against her after they lied and said that they were abducted and there was a huge sympathy for them. I mean, what she did was reprehensible and it caused huge pain to her family, to her mother. And she also lied to the mother. She lied in media interviews. So there was a lot of damage done, you know, and and less sympathy than there would have been, I think maybe if they put their hands up at the start and said, yeah, mea culpa, we did it. And then everyone maybe would have felt sorry for them entering this jail, but as it dragged out and, and, and the lies kept going and, you know, and, and I think there was GoFundMe pages and different things and the mother was insisting that, you know, it, it certainly was very selfish, extremely, extremely selfish what she did, even on a level of with her family, not contacting them. She used to contact her mother twice a, a day. She's the youngest in the family and to go missing like that, you know, they it was a nightmare for the family and it was a nightmare Afterwards, and uh, you know, then, and then, yeah, she does speak very movingly of when she left the prison, and it's nearly like a movie. She said she had to walk down this long kind of. She's in the desert, and the, her Melissa, her the lady she is locked up with, walks with her with another with another lady who's a cellmate, and they walk with her to the door as far as they can go, and she used to leave Melissa behind because Melissa hasn't got parole at the same time as she has. So she, in another few months, she's free. And she walks down this long path, sunlit path. And at the end of it is her mother and some other family members. And she runs into her mother's arms and she said they're like freaks. They're just kind of crying uncontrollably. So that is a very moving part of it. Uh, you know, and, the, and afterwards she has, you know, given interviews saying when she got back to Northern Ireland that it was a culture shock and that she felt a bit ostracised from... She didn't want to go out in public. The only place that she had, would feel comfortable going was the gym. So I suppose she has is trying to control her own narrative and she is trying to explain, you know, I did something pretty reprehensible. These are the reasons maybe why I was lured into it. But she's not, she's saying she was stupid and that she shouldn't have done it, but she's on the road to a recovery now. Yeah, and I mean, I don't think there's any harm in controlling your own narrative. Like, I mean, that Piers Morgan interview, like he's a very experienced journalist. She was going out, I'd say, did she think before she said that about the media? Does she think now that was a stupid goddamn thing to say? Because firstly, she was using the media and she was she lied to them herself. So, you know, she probably does. And now she's a little bit more mature and maybe she's just found a controlled environment to tell it as it was and it seems to be a no holds barred um interview would you, you you'd recommend watching it yes uh, it's done brilliantly it has it's this fast pace it's nearly like a train spotting kind of a vibe about it there's music the whole way through it and at the start she's saying there i am michaela mccollum with the most famous infamous up to 
in the world or something to this effect. And she's saying, if I could just press pause, but it nearly has a train spotting kind of vibe. You know, it's the same thing. It's this dr- drugs and it goes into very dark places uh, within it. But she just, she's very, very good at telling her story. And she say, and they do make the point, this is a drug smuggler's, convicted drug smuggler's account. We haven't been able to verify a lot of the facts. So you're taking it on good faith that, you know, what she is saying is true. But they've also interviewed the chief prosecutor in Peru. They've interviewed the police detectives. They've interviewed a cartel lawyer who's very, very scary, who says, that's just one other thing we haven't gone through. But he he was, and she was afraid. The reason they got the eight years and six months is because they had to hand over some information about the cartel that they were involved with. She seems at pains to point out in the documentary that she gave them a little bit, which might lead them maybe to the location of this apartment somewhere in the town of, of, of uh, some, some town in the island of Mallorca. But she said, of course, much, li- much less than I knew. So obviously she's still, I mean, that's a big cartel that she was involved with. She knows far more than she's saying, but, you know, is her life worth telling more about it? So she, she's nearly saying... In the documentary to the cartel, I haven't told as much as I knew because this cartel lawyer says it would be so easy for her to be killed in prison by a Sicario, say mob name, isn't it? And he said it's a matter of, it's a simple matter. It's just a matter of a few seconds. She could be strangled. And there's another way of doing it was poison in her Coke or her water. And he said she could even be killed by the police. Now, this is what he is claiming. Well, I don't think there's any doubt that she could have been and life is life is so cheap within that world that it is quite amazing that she got through it and uh, that she survived and that maybe they just thought that the whole thing was so ludicrous and crazy. Maybe even they thought it was uh, it was so crazy that you couldn't just kill them off. There was no reason to. They were just seemed to be so flapping around and, and not really understanding exactly what they had got into. Yeah, and the another thing she said was that she'd made closer friends in prison than she had on the outside world. And I think it was there's a figure of around a third of them are drug mules there. So it's a very sad situation for a lot of them. And she, she didn't make very close friendships. So she seems to have got a lot of strength. I mean, she's never going to go through anything worse in her life. Damn right. You can imagine, you know, from here on in, she can cope with an interview with Piers Morgan, I imagine. She did look like a rabbit caught in the headlights in that interview and maybe she shouldn't have cast dispersions on the media when she was lying to them. But she's, she's there's a steeliness about her as well, you know, that she, you just imagine she will go on now and make something of herself. Well, she sounds like a fascinating person anyway. And um, whatever about a documentary, it is most definitely the stuff of movies and multiple ones, I imagine. So, um, Lynn Kelleher, thank you very much. Thank you, Nicola Talent. You've been listening to Crime World, a podcast from sundayworld.com, produced by Ian Mullaney and edited by me, Nicola Talent. If you like the podcast and love true crime, why not download the free sundayworld.com app for lots more stories from Ireland and across the globe.